Hello Liverpool, this is Islington calling. <laughs> Welcome to Oh God, What Now? Scoring 12 points from the podcasting audience for the sixth year in a row. I'm Ros Taylor. This week, the Home Office begins assembling its fleet of migrant detention boats. Who are we letting into the country? And what's the rationale behind it? Plus, today mid-Suffolk, tomorrow the world. The Greens are surging. Will it last? And is a Lib Dem Labour coalition on the cards? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, hot mics and Freudian slips as we discuss the best on-air gaffes. Let's meet the panel. Marie Leconte is a columnist and author of Escape, How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet. Hello, Marie. Hello. Last week, it was reported that Vice was headed for bankruptcy. BuzzFeed and Galdem have already gone. You got your start at sites like Vice. What are we losing when they go? Because it feels as though legacy media has triumphed. I know, absolutely. So I came into the media in 2013 and it very much felt like, you know, I got really lucky because I think people who came in at the same time as I did, like we kind of got to ride the wave of online media and kind of, you know, all those new websites and everything was exciting and fun. And somehow there was money sloshing around, which doesn't really happen in the media industry normally, you know, to the extent that, you know, there was even chat of people saying, actually, you know, are newspapers going to become irrelevant? Like, is this it? Will BuzzFeed and Vice um, and others kind of rule the world? And yeah, about, you know, 10 years on, nearly exactly, nearly all those websites are gone. So you listed three of them, but then so many more. I had to make a list for the thing I was writing. And yeah, there's about like a dozen websites. All of them are gone. And I think we're losing a lot. So the first thing is that we're losing, I think, a lot of quite interesting niche content because at risk of stating the obvious national newspapers and kind of legacy organisations, by definition, have to appeal to as many people as possible because that's what that's what they do. But I think a lot of online outlets, the way they work is by identifying, kind of creating a niche for themselves. And so I think that we've kind of lost this breadth and kind of that wealth of content. And also I would say, you know, kind of, well, I suppose selfishly, but then again, I just have survivor's guilt now, um, that, you know, it really allowed so many people to get their foot in the door in journalism because let's be honest a lot of these places didn't pay that well so they couldn't really commission established journalists so they relied very heavily on quite random people in their early and mid-20s to write quite weird stuff for them Um, and again I I was very much one of those people and you know I'm not sure what's going to happen now because if you're let's say again 22-23 kind of starting in journalism you're not going to get commissioned in the Sunday Times straight away like that is not going to happen so yeah so I, I do worry that you know for readers, we are kind of on an immediate level losing a lot of interesting, fun, weird content. But then on the kind of longer run as well, probably quite a lot of people who would have managed to get into journalism using those routes, uh, those kind of non-traditional routes, will just have to go do something else now. Yeah, it's interesting because for my generation, a lot of people came in via the internet branches of established media. Uh, you know, that you might start work on the BBC website or, as I did, on the Guardian website. And it was a strange dynamic because you were simultaneously seen as the future, but also seen as a terrible threat. <laughs> and um, but was it? But also at the same, because I did that at the Mirror for a bit. So I think it was both of those, but also you were kind of seen as an irrelevant child, mm. um, where we had a little team doing quite fun internet content at the Mirror, and yeah, and, and same sort of like we were very much viewed with like suspicion, but also in quite a patronising way, I think by other journalists, which was an interesting mix. And again, that was what nine, nine, ten years ago. Yeah, and um, of course now everything is so integrated and rightly so that I don't think you have that dynamic, which is which is a good thing, but probably makes it even more difficult to get into that organisation than it than it ever was. Naomi Smith is chief exec at Best for Britain. Hello, Naomi. 
Hello, hi. The Eurovision Grand Final is this Saturday in Liverpool. It feels odd to be having a European celebration in the UK, but I guess <laughs> I guess we should take what we can get. Do Do you enjoy all the geopolitical tensions on show? I've got to whisper this. <laughs> I don't really love Eurovision. <gasps> oh my I god! Really get it? I know. I'm gonna I'm gonna lose my job, aren't I? <laughs> um, the best. I don't like it either. What? I think it's massively overrated. Oh, I I'm going to walk out. I'm going to walk out of this podcast. I must admit, I've not sat through an entire Eurovision. It's just too what? bloody long. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and this is where oh everyone God. confesses. I'm, I'm so sorry. And, you know, I have a lot of gay friends who are probably now going to excommunicate me for this. However, you said geopolitical tensions, Roz. And it is, you know, there are, there are major political moments. Um, in 2019, Remember when Iceland had the Palestinian flag um, and 2015 Armenia used their song to mark a centenary of the Armenian genocide? Well, they do get admonished for this because there is sort of quite a strict no politics rule laid down by the organisers. And then, of course, you know, people try to politicise it when the votes come in and all EU countries vote against Britain because of Brexit. But I think that kind of falls apart when you consider how poorly the UK did pre-2016 and you know of course they did incredibly well last year and it's probably overstated um, that countries close to each other vote for each other because otherwise you probably always have the same winners but I think what is lovely about it is that it is in Liverpool I am such a massive fan of Liverpool what a fantastic city Lots of great things come out of Liverpool. I mean, Podmasters Andrew Harrison, for starters, obviously the Beatles. And now we look set to have about a decade of Labour Party conference being in Liverpool every single year because they've kind of done a massive block booking for several years ahead. And of course, Liverpool is hosting on behalf of Ukraine this year, which is very lovely. I may watch bits of it, but I'm not a massive Eurovisioner and I'm not going to be staying up all night. And I don't think I've ever voted Arthur Snell is the author of How Britain Broke the World and host of Doomsday Watch. Season four is out now and the latest episode covers the extent of Russia's war crimes in Ukraine. Hello, Arthur. Hi, Roz. As if Ukraine doesn't have enough problems, there are new restrictions on grain exports from Ukraine to the EU. And the group of EU countries behind those restrictions include Bulgaria and Hungary. What's happened here? Yeah, well, also it includes Poland, which we think of as as Ukraine's sort of closest friend in Europe. So what's happened is that up until Russia's invasion, Ukraine's huge agricultural exports had a tariff on coming into the EU, as as you would expect, because, of course, that's one of the things about the EU, that it's better to be inside than outside. Uh, But then the tariff was lifted after the invasion as a sort of gesture of solidarity to the Ukrainians. But then the combination of lifting the tariff and then the Russians blockading the Black Sea ports meant that basically a glut of Ukrainian agricultural produce was reaching Central and Eastern Europe and completely undermining the farmers in that region. So even though these are countries that are not like Hungary necessarily, but certainly Poland and, and others have been very supportive of Ukraine, they're not so supportive that they're willing to screw over their own farmers. It's difficult, isn't it? Because you want to keep those countries on side and not peeling off and perhaps allying, you know, starting to ally themselves with Putin. Yeah. And 
if you look at Hungary, Hungary have been on Russia's side from the start, but that's very much linked in with Viktor Orban's kind of mini-me authoritarianism that, that he's doing there. But it does show this wider problem that people showed an enormous amount of solidarity with Ukraine. But of course, there, there are still economic pressures on those countries, and particularly farmers tend to operate a pretty sort of nationalist approach. Don't forget, in two weeks, we'll be back in the flesh at the Leicester Square Theatre. On Wednesday, May the 24th, join me, Alex Andreu, and Arthur plus Marie doing her first live show. Woo! Any requests for the rider, Marie? One bottle of champagne. Just one bottle. Just not, no, honestly, not I ten. Because I think reasonable. ten would be, you know, think, the nice, audacious rider. I am being very reasonable. And, and I've not specified the size of the bottle of champagne, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to be a Nebuchadnezzar or something, whatever it's called. Absolutely. Excellent. It'll be a fantastic evening of political sniping, backbiting and nitpicking, just like the regular show. But you'll be able to see as well as hear us losing our tempers. Tickets are on sale now. Go to leicestersquaretheatre.com to book your spot. Patreon backers get a discount too. Check your inbox. During the coronation, Lee Anderson MP suggested that the solution for those people under threat of arrest for protesting against the coronation would be to emigrate. Well, I would think about that myself, Lee. But in the past few years, the Conservative Party has made moving to another country a lot more difficult. You may not have noticed. The UK's immigration rules are in a confusing place at the moment. On the one hand, over 300,000 visas have been issued to Ukrainians since the war broke out. Some Hong Kongers also have the right to come here, but there are no safe and legal routes to Britain for those fleeing the conflict in Sudan. Arthur, as you've pointed out in the past, Britain's foreign policy interventions are not always successful, to say the least. What are we doing in Sudan now that most Britons have been evacuated? Well, I think the answer is very little. Uh, obviously, our embassy is no longer there. Um, it's really more a question of what we might be doing elsewhere to try to reduce the violence, perhaps help shift things towards a more peaceful outcome. Now, Britain does form part of something called the Quad, which is the UK, the US, the Saudis and the Emiratis. Uh, but that uh, little grouping, which was rather active about a year ago, seems to be almost moribund at the moment. I think that Britain is probably wishing that Sudan would disappear. Give us a potted history of Britain's involvement in Sudan, because like a lot of countries, we invaded it at one point, didn't we? Uh, we did. Um, now, of course, we could do a whole podcast series on this, but to try to be as quick as possible, people might have heard of Gordon of Khartoum, who was one of these sort of Victorian adventurers, uh, and he was um, cut to pieces by a, uh, a sort of army of what would probably qualify as Islamist radicals. And you can imagine that set uh, blood pressure rising in Victorian Britain. And so then in 1898, uh, Britain sent this enormous imperial force, uh, really one of the kind of the signature moments of British imperialism. They literally built a whole new railway in order to carry on an invasion. From that point onwards, Sudan was a sort of colony of Britain. But I say sort of because it was technically under Egypt, and Egypt, although basically run as a British colony, was technically part of the Ottoman Empire. So it's a bit confusing, but it was basically a colony. So did we leave around the time of Suez? Yes, so um, a bit earlier. So in 56, the, um, the, the, the Sudan became independent and arguably the first uh, sort of post-colonial independent African state. But throughout the time of British colonialism, it was run very much as a north and a south Sudan. And that tension 
among many others, existed in the country throughout its history. And of course, we, we know about the independence of South, South Sudan that came as after decades of war. Are people now fleeing the civil war there? And where, where are they going? There's a lot of migration routes sort of heading in all directions. So you're, you're looking at uh, refugees going into Egypt. There are refugees heading into South Sudan, one of the world's poorest countries. Uh, but of course, it's also a, it's a huge country in itself. And so uh, there, there's a lot of in, internally displaced people as well. There's clearly a humanitarian case for helping Sudanese refugees. You know, there's a civil war there. Is this one that's likely to persuade the British government? I don't think so. I think whether justified or not, it will be fairly easy for the government to claim that this is an internal conflict. You know, we're, we're not involved uh, to the, the extent of our recent involvement has been trying to support the different parties to reach a kind of peaceful conclusion. And in that sense, whilst you can criticise that argument and talk about the colonial history and all the rest of it. It's very different to something like Afghanistan, where we were literally, you know, an occupying army not that long ago. The Home Office has a very large backlog of asylum claims, and the plan was to fast track ones from countries like Yemen, war-torn countries. How is that going? It's going badly. Uh, there, there was this idea for a fast track, and the people trying to get onto that scheme was supposed to fill out an extremely complex form. My own experience of ever helping people deal with home office paperwork is that it is unbelievably complicated. And just as was predicted by various immigration lawyers, including Colin Yeo, who many listeners to this podcast might know, this form has just proved sort of impossible for people to complete correctly, which then means that people go back into roughly the same system of needing a direct interview. Now, in its typical bad faith way, the Home Office is claiming that people filled in the form deliberately badly in order to get an interview. But I, I think that's um, you know, it's just an, it's an unreasonable uh, statement that you, it's a sort of thing you expect the Home Office to say. Naomi, the Rwanda deportation plans are, of course, part of the illegal migration bill, which has now reached the Lords. How are they likely to try to change it? Will they succeed? Well, they're extremely likely to try. However, the opposition parties seem to be very divided on the best approach to it. So reports this morning, we've recorded this podcast on Wednesday, are that Labour are refusing to back a Liberal Democrat fatal motion. So that is likely to fail. Labour's argument being that the government is going to bung it all into the next King's speech to force it through anyway, and then they would lose their right to amend it. The debate today does not include a vote on amendments. That will come later, it's worth pointing out. And it's just worth remembering what this does to our soft power globally. The UNHCR has said the legislation would amount to an asylum ban and be a clear breach of the Refugee Convention, and that, of course, undermines our reputation on the world stage. It, it's, it's a horrible, horrible piece of legislation, and it is progressing incredibly fast through Parliament. Um, and peers, I hope, are, are, are you know, very attuned to the consequences of that 
haste and lack of parliamentary scrutiny that it's getting as a consequence. The purpose of the Illegal Migration Bill, of course, is to try to deter migrants because there are, as we just heard, there's a huge backlog and there are a lot of people um, who the government is scrabbling around to try to find places for them to live. I mean, they're pulling kids out of schools as they try to find accommodation. The Netherlands has started using ships to house migrants and that's also the UK plan. What does being locked up on a ship for months on end mean for migrants? I mean, misery, probably. Um, Outbreaks of horrible illnesses. One of the reasons I have never been tempted to go on a cruise ship is because I've read far too many horror stories of norovirus outbreaks. Um, And that was before the pandemic, when, if you remember, quite a lot of large ships weren't allowed to dock in ports because of outbreaks of coronavirus on them. It's hard to know exactly what these ships will actually be like. But when you consider the conditions of Napier barracks, I think it's right to be very, very concerned. And you rightly mentioned, Ros, the Netherlands uh, have been keeping people on a ferry. Um, Oddly, some of the people they've interviewed seem to prefer it compared to the camps where they were forced into a room with, you know, too many other people. But I would hardly say that was an advertisement for for copying it and and following suit. I just can't see how it's anything other than a floating prison. Why does the Home Office seem to be unable to process these applications? Is it a personnel issue? Remember back in February, Sunak announced he was speeding up efforts to clear that mammoth backlog of claims by removing the need for interviews and replacing it with a requirement for claimants from certain countries like Afghanistan and Yemen to fill out a questionnaire uh, from which that asylum claim would then be judged and that should set off alarm bells as it's really unclear on what ground someone's questionnaire would be declined and I would imagine that the threshold is probably very low. Um, I saw today in the Times there was a government source reported who said the whole thing has just been a complete mess, only 10% of the forms have been completed properly so interviews have had to go ahead anyway Um, And some accusations from government that lawyers are briefing applicants, as Arthur said, to deliberately mess up their forms so that they get an interview. And that reeks of culture war bullshit to me. Um, Why why can't they? You know, I I don't know, but they're not. And it's disgraceful. Um, And it's, you know, real people's lives being destroyed with every single minute that passes that they're not being sufficiently processed. Marie, a lot of us have been hoping that Keir Starmer would take a stand against the illegal migration bill. He has not. He said today that he wouldn't repeal it. Is there any recent Tory legislation that he would repeal? So I believe he did make one statement on anti-strike laws and the fact that Labour would repeal uh, them. But that was very much the exception because actually quite recently um, a lot of activists uh, called on Labour to repeal the new mm-hmm. anti-protest bill. And currently, I think, you know, there, there's some noises being made, but none of them sound in any way sort of certain that anything will happen. But, you know, what, what is quite interesting about this is that it's kind of an issue that has been rumbling on for a bit because obviously we also had Keir Starmer saying that he's probably not going to uh, reverse anything on tuition fees anytime soon, even if he wins. And yeah, and, you know, you did have a number of Labour supporters starting to ask, actually, you know, what are you going to do? Like, well, what's the point of you if you're going to come in and not actually repeal any of the sort of madder um, Tory bits of legislation? But then Sir Louis Haig, who's the Shadow Secretary of State, uh, made the point of saying that actually 
it would be falling into the conservatives' trap to kind of decide to repeal every single bit of legislation they didn't like because actually that would take up so much time. Labour would have to come into government and effectively spend the first 100 days just repealing everything and not doing anything of their own, which would not actually be a good use of anyone's time. So actually using either secondary legislation or kind of tinkering around the edges would probably have the same effect without repealing everything wholesale, which I sort of buy, I suppose. It's a kind of wait-and-see situation, I think, but, but that feels like a reasonable explanation nation I don't think it does I had a quick look into this before we recorded and I I don't think that secondary legislation tinkering can do a hell of a lot to override primary re- legislation or I mean it, it could maybe make it slightly less bad but I don't think it I mean it, it's a very very kind of woolly attempt at appeasing the Labour core vote that will be incensed by what's happened over the last uh, while with this deeply authoritarian move from the government on various different bills now acts and and how they're impacting people. So I'm not I'm not totally convinced by Louise's argument in terms of my reading of how legislative tinkering can be effective. So net migration from legal routes like Ukraine and Hong Kong and things like NHS work visas is up a lot now. Is the Tory focus on small boats actually a deliberate ploy to keep our attention off that and off talking about bigger issues about migration and on to illegal migration? That is a good question. And I think that actually what, what's been really fascinating about this is that um, that gone entirely under the radar, the whole, you know, the fact that legal migration numbers had gone up and up and up in recent years, and especially again in the past couple of years since Brexit. Um, and, and so, so which is probably why. So in a weird way, I'm not, I'm not even sure that's the Tories trying to go look over there, because actually no one had even really noticed in a sort of meaningful way that that happened. Uh, no, I, I, I think it may just be as easy as actually Britain does desperately need migrants to come and do jobs and work here and live here because it's that sort of country, that sort of economy at the moment. And I think it's more of a case of the government kind of not saying or doing anything and not drawing attention to it, perhaps, by talking about it in any way, because they know it will probably be quite unpopular with, you know, swathes of their own electorate. Um, but yes, no, I, I, I found it really interesting because I'm entirely happy to admit that that passed me by as well. Um, turns out we are, well, you know, post-Brexit Britain is welcoming more immigrants than ever. I suppose if we talked about that, we would have to talk about how badly we pay jobs in social care in the NHS, for example. And then we might have to ask whether it was reasonable for people to strike over pay. And that would get us into a whole other can of worms. Oh, God, yeah, that's an entire other episode, isn't it? (laughs) Indeed. Arthur, a Trump-era immigration policy called Title 42 is about to expire in the US. What is Title 42? Well, rather as uh, we were just talking about the way that Keir Starmer might end up finding it quite useful to have some very sort of hard right uh, legislation on his books. Title 42 was a Trump era public health restriction, which related to the COVID epidemic, but it basically gave huge uh, powers over immigration under the sort of guise of being a public health uh, restriction. So does it mean that there might be a surge in immigration when it expires? Well, right. So because the COVID emergency is is officially ex- over now, it expires on May the 11th. And um, that would then make it harder for the Biden administration to send people back into Mexico or return to their home countries, except that then the, the Biden administration is planning its own policies to sort of 
to to make up for that. This was a Trump era policy. Uh, Trump himself has just been found guilty of sexual assault in the 1990s, uh, to no one's surprise, I think. Will, Will that hinder a presidential run? I'm really depressed to think that it might even help him somehow. Uh, his whole presidential campaign is predicated on this idea of sort of grievance of of the idea that there's a certain element of of American society that is is um, you know somehow being laughed at by the Washington elite and all the rest of it. And he just plays into this and he talks about the greatest witch hunt in history. Yeah, I, I, who knows? I mean, it, it ought to, of course, in any normal scenario. Let's not forget he's already been charged with criminal offences relating to tax issues. Of course, he he also started an insurrection. These are all things that you would think would uh, rule you out, but it doesn't seem to work like that. So the more, more that we hold him to account, the more he escapes. Uh, he escapes accountability. It's it's an awful paradox, isn't it, that I have trouble getting my head around, and yet I understand how and why it's happening. But I still have this cognitive dissonance where it's it's mad. Yeah, it it is mad, and um, and it's it's a function in part of I think the electoral college system, which means that, that because he he doesn't he doesn't have a chance of winning an election in a normal. Uh, presidential election that most countries have where the person who gets the most votes is president. But the electoral college system gives him that special advantage that he can play to certain groups in certain parts of America and, and you know, has a very high chance both of being adopted as a candidate and a reasonable chance of winning, albeit, you know, let's not forget that he did lose heavily to Biden last time around. I mean, the only other thing I'd say is that it does seem to me that a lack of moral courage is a defining feature of modern conservatism. And we see it with the Brexit uh, issue where many conservative politicians went along with Brexit, although they didn't agree with it. And you see it again with, with the Republicans in America. And it just seems extraordinary to me that, that it is, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of human, um, it's a human failing more than any kind of big picture policy issue that is letting this happen. Okay, it's time for But Your Emails. Keep them coming in, by the way. We may not have the answers, but we love talking about the problems. This week, it's Jonathan Graham, and he asks, Podcast favourite Andrew Bridgen MP, who was expelled from the Tories for likening the COVID vaccine rollout to the Holocaust, has joined Lawrence Fox's right-wing micro-party, Reclaim. Uh, Will you miss him? Uh, And isn't it a bit foolish to have two far-right parties with very similar names? Because, of course, there's also reform. Voters could get confused. Marie, do we know the difference between reclaim and reform? Uh, So I'm going to be honest, until earlier today, I kind of thought they were the same and I had to reread the story of Andrew Bridgen and I was like, oh, Uh, but I love the idea that it's actually dirty tactics between the two parties. So like for all seven potential voters they may have, you know, them going, oh, well, they may get confused and tick our box instead of them. So just endless squabbling about literally just seven people. Yeah, it does feel a bit like um, People's Front of Judea, but on the far right rather (laughs) than the far, far left, doesn't it? I mean, I think I think the main difference between them is that Reclaim have at least one MP now, which Reform do not. Um, Reform are very uh, keen on stoking cultural issues, whereas that is the only thing that defines Reclaim. And I can't believe that I'm saying this, but next to Reclaim, Reform look a bit 
more professional and rational. So when you take like climate change, reform say it exists, but isn't driven by human activity, et cetera, et cetera, blah, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas reclaim just outright say hoax, hoax, nothing to see here. There is no climate change. Um, and they're both very obsessed with the word woke. Which one is renew? Oh, that's the one that is that renew has merged now with Gina Miller's true and fair party. Okay. So that's that's on the other side of the yeah. political. I really right. think there should be a third far right party that's set with re, like the kind of sort of like fascist equivalent of like live, love, love, just like reform, reclaim, regenerate something. <laughs> but that's a Labour slogan, but it's slogan, isn't it? Basically, it's going to be their next Labour slogan: reform. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it, we should note perhaps that it's a strategy that worked, unfortunately, for UKIP in before the um, referendum, when I think it was two. MPs, one of them was Douglas Carswell, I can't quite remember the name of the other one, who defected to UKIP. And of course, that really put up the wind uh, of David Cameron. And that was one of the things that led him to call the referendum. So defecting to another party is clearly something that they think might work for them in the future. But uh, will it? Well, I don't think so, because I think what's important here is that Andrew Bridgen had already been uh, kicked out of the Conservative Party. So it's not a case of, you know, going, well, I'm going over, you know, I no longer like you. It's like, no, I had nowhere to go anyway. But no, I really enjoyed, I think it was around PMQs today. He was, <laughs> Bridgen was kind of trying to find a, a place to sit in the Commons and kept trying to make small talk with a series of MPs, all of you, like, some of whom literally moved seats, like a sort of like school bus type situation. <laughs> and others were kind of rolling their eyes. So no, I, I, I'm not, I'm not convinced that anyone's looking at Bridgen and going, ooh, I could join him. It is just such a risky strategy to be called reclaim and reform and on the same. I mean, <laughs> when you consider that they're in alphabetical order as well on the ballot paper, unless they engineer it so that they don't have two candidates in the same constituency running, I, I do think that their likely voters are likely to be very confused. <laughs> and, and they are easily confused. <laughs> yes. They are. <laughs> I kept hearing about a Rishi Sunak bounce in the spring. People were impressed by the PM's competence and were turning back to the Tories, apparently. But while this wasn't a general election and Sunak himself wasn't going to go anywhere, the country has sent a message to the Tories and it isn't an endorsement. They lost more than a 1,000 council seats and also lost control of 40 councils. Labour did OK, more on that later, but the real winners of the night were the Greens and the Lib Dems. The Greens are now in control of Mid-Suffolk District Council. It's the first majority Green Council in the Northern Hemisphere and they have been telling us about it. Marie, what were the Greens offering in these elections and why are people now going for it? Oh, well, I am going to be incredibly cynical here. Um, so I, I, you know, I actually tried to do my job. I went on the Green website to read uh, their National Manifesto. It dates from 2019, according to the name in the PDF file. So it's fair to say it's not changed massively. But no, so I think so. See, I, I think the Greens are kind of doing a slightly Lib Demi play here um, in that, you know, the, the people will kind of know their very vague sort of broad direction of travel in terms of we like the environment, we don't love the Tories. But I think it's more that what happened here, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit later in this segment as well, is that there's just been so much anti-Tory voting. And I think on a very local level, what the Greens represent is we do care about the environment and actually like a number of people have started to care about. We're not the Tories. And also, crucially, 
we also will not let any houses be built in this area because they are on a local level that like massively NIMBY-ish. Um, and, and I think that's kind of that. And, you know, and I think that if you're quite a minor party in Britain, especially in local elections, you don't even necessarily need to have a very coherent sort of national policy platform. You can just on the very local level say, well, listen, you know, we're not those guys you hate. And also we will block every development. There is something of a tension between the Greens' social justice credentials, which are pretty strong, uh, especially in Scotland, for example, where they've been in uh, coalition with the SNP. And, uh, you know, that means building more houses. It has to. And their instincts to keep development as minimal as possible, as you say. How is that playing out? I remember talking about this to Zach Polanski, one of the deputy leaders, and saying, well, you know, Londoners need houses really badly, but Greens are not very pro-building things. How do you square that? And he said something about Brownfield. People always talk about Brownfield. They really do. They really do love talking about Brownfield, don't they? Well, I mean, I don't know. To... I think that's a problem every party struggle with. You know, on a local level, I cannot think of a single major party in Britain that actually is pro, you know, housing was it even earlier today, I think it was a Labour MP who got properly panned on Twitter because she, because again, she's a local MP and she tweeted something along the lines of, you know, really happy I managed to stop this development in my constituency from happening. Um, so so I think every party is guilty of that on, on the local level. They want to keep their votes. And actually, sadly, the people who vote don't have very strong views, very strong negative views about stuff being built around them. But, you know, for the Greens, it is, I think, especially galling because, as you say, a lot of their, again, sort of like broader policy work could not happen if we don't have more housing or even, you know, they're very anti uh, HS2, which feels really just completely baffling. Again, if you want fewer people to drive, surely, and then I realise I'm kind of stating the obvious here, but if you want fewer people to drive um, around Britain, which I, I personally think would be a good thing, then obviously you need better and faster and uh, more frequent trains. And but that feels like, and, and of course, yes, it will take a lot of resources and time and money to get that built. But on the long run, that is very obviously the best thing. So you know, I, I do think that, that you know, that those um, bits of kind of complete incoherence do exist. But then so I, I wonder if how will play out, I suppose, over the next few months, because actually recently I would say that the national press has not massively cared about the Green Party. So that's probably why they managed to get away with it to an extent. But given how well they've done, like that may have been a bit of a poison chalice where the press may now actually go, hang on, can you please square that circle? I think what's really interesting about the Greens was where their votes came from. And they took seats mostly from Conservatives and Independents, um, which which may play into to some of what... Marie's just been talking about, you know, it's not the young, progressive left voter that um, seems to have helped them to victory here. It's been in rural areas like Suffolk, where they now control the council, gaining votes from farmers and uh, people working in the agricultural sector pissed off with dirty waterways, polluting their crops and, and livestock. Um, so I think that is a, a fascinating dynamic to the Greens that they're so often thought of as a kind of challenger to Labour in places like Brighton and Bristol. But actually, where they seem to be doing incredibly well is in places like Suffolk, where the, the demographic is quite different. I do think WhatsApp has played a role in this, because I think it's it's an ideal tool at a kind of street level for people to get really angry about things. And often those things are planning applications and work themselves up in a way which would be quite hard if you were just getting a leaflet through your door. 
Um, I mean, it's it's great in many ways that communities are getting together in this way. And of course, it's a, you know something that happened in the pandemic. But it does seem to activate perhaps NIMBYism in a way that it wasn't quite activated before. Marie, there was a, a bit of a comeback for Labour in Brighton and Hove. And that's an interesting place because the Greens were in minority leadership there, not majority leadership, because as I said, Mid-Suffolk is their first first council that they're properly in control of. Is Should that worry the party? Um, probably. I mean, it's not... Um, and I'm going to be entirely honest here and say that I've not I've not been entirely following every single minute detail of um, the way they um, you know the way the council has been run in in Brighton. But from what I've heard, like you know, from people who live in Brighton and from kind of like general chatter, they were quite bad. Like the Green Party was actually quite bad at running services in Brighton. I remember, like, wasn't there like I think like strikes of bin men and actually you know stuff did keep going wrong. So um, and I think again that probably happens quite a lot in very small parties. You start winning for literally the first time ever when it's not they didn't really know what they're doing so yes I mean and then yeah and I suspect they're also again like Brighton is a big city etc so that that can't be easy as a kind of first go even though again they were just minority uh, leadership so I mean yes it should worry them but clearly I think that, that that's not a new thing like clearly they've not been doing a very good job in Brighton for quite some time anyway. Naomi did you see evidence of people voting tactically last Thursday? Yep, there was a real mix, both of tactical voting and progressive alliances um, organised by brilliant local groups across the country who were sort of defying their party HQs to to not stand against each other in order to defeat the Conservative uh, candidates. Um, If you want any more details of that, go back and listen to me and Roz on the emergency elections cast that that came out last Friday. Um, Bit worryingly, though, today I've heard that the Labour NEC are trying to block some Labour Green administrations forming after uh, last Thursday's local elections. I think there are at least four councils in Kent where red green power sharing may be a thing. So that's that's all sort of designed to try and stop local parties doing these kinds of uh, tactical manoeuvres. Um, But yes, there was definitely a a healthy chunk of tactical voting happening and decent progressive alliance work. I think for the for the Lib Dems, we talked quite a bit about the Greens. um, This was probably their best set of local election results since 2010. And much more interesting than their overall councillor number is their popular vote and where it was distributed, which I think probably bodes quite well for them at a general election. Um, So take places that they've long hoped to maybe add to their target list of seats but never been able to win, places like Chelmsford and Brentwood might be now coming into play if we extrapolate how well they did in the locals to a general election. But, and here's a big but, in every election since their inception in the 80s, the Lib Dems have overemphasised how many seats they could win at a general election. So even under their highest point, Charles Kennedy, 2005, returning well over 65, no, 60 MPs, I think it was 62 or something they got, um, they'd been briefing it would be 100. Um, We had all of that hubris turned to nemesis with Clegmania in 2010, then leading to almost wipeout in 2015. In 2019, and the European elections all went to their heads, and you then had Joe Swinson saying, I'll be the next prime minister. So the concern for me at the moment is that they could be very high on the fumes of last Thursday and now start going after more seats than was in their original target list for the next general election and then start splitting votes with Labour. 
allowing the Conservatives to stay in. Yeah, I mean, by the same token, um, the swing the swing to Labour in the locals, because so many, many people voted tactically, presumably, would not be big enough to deliver a Labour majority. Um, do you sense that people will, you know, be quite savvy about it and will be able to see who the likely winner is in order to avoid that scenario? Only if they listen to best written tactical voting advice, um, because when when people are asked who is in second place in their constituency, invariably they get it wrong. So we know this from academic studies that have been done. Very few people know who is in second place. And I don't blame them because who the hell has got time to nerd out on that kind of stuff? Throw in then the big changes we've had in the party since the last election. You know, Starmer is definitely not Corbyn. Uh, Davy is you know, similar-ish, but not that diff- you know, not, not that similar to Joe Swinson. In fact, actually, before we record, it sounds like Adam Price, leader of Plaid Cymru, is on the way out. And by my reckoning, that means none of the GB party leaders at the next general election will be the same ones that led their party into the 2019 general election. So things have changed quite rapidly. And then we have constituency boundary changes coming into force in July, which means that your constituency name may well have changed. The makeup of the constituency could be a bit different. It might be bringing in some more conservative wards, some more Labour wards, etc. So I think tactical voting advice from uh, a source that is rooted in up-to-the-minute polling data rather than the outcome at the last election will be critical to making sure people do the right thing. I think also on the Labour majority point, I'm concerned, you know, cast your mind back six months ago, Labour had between a 20 and 30 point lead, depending on the day of the week and which pollster it was. And they've now got close to a sort of 12 to 15 point lead at the moment, which is really quite a big drop um, in the last six months. And on average, the incumbent party of government tends to get between a five to eight percent bounce about six to 12 months out from a general election. So at the moment, I really cannot allow myself to be anything other than hypervigilant um, and concerned that we're not out of the woods yet for more Tory rule. And I'm telling you, 1992 fears should be running deep for all of us uh, at this moment in time. Arthur, you were canvassing for the Lib Dems in Gloucestershire. What were people telling you on the doorstep? Yeah, well, um, by a weird quirk of the electoral system, I was mostly focused on a on a council by-election rather than these main local elections, but it, it's the same campaign, basically. Uh, I mean, a couple of interesting things. One is that things like the cost of living crisis and uh, rivers full of shit from sewage, you won't be surprised to learn, are very high on people's agendas, and people feel very clear about the fact that it's the Tories that have done that to them. Uh, just on, on the NIMBY point, there is a slight myth that the Lib Dems go around winning elections by being opposed to housing. And actually, that is, if I look at, for example, the, the platform the Lib Dems uh, had in Tewkesbury, which is just in, in North Gloucestershire, where they, they took loads of seats and, and, and the Tories were booted off the council, that's that's not on the agenda and, and it's not on the agenda in other areas. So I, I'm, I'm sure it's part of the discussion on doorsteps, but I, I think it's being overdone, the idea that the Lib Dems are a secret NIMBY party. Um, it's certainly not on the election literature. And, and as I say, when I was knocking on doors, people weren't talking about it as nearly as much or at all, really, in, as, as they were 
about the, the basic economic crisis, which, which people are very clear who, who's responsible for. Were people hesitating between the Lib Dems and the Greens? Yes, definitely. So in, in the Stroud area, where the Greens have always been uh, a, a bit of a local force, uh, it's challenging. And, and it's, a, it's the classic, um, you know, the classic progressive alliance dilemma. If you have a place where there's more than one, uh, you know, progressive party, uh, pe- people find it difficult. And their individual candidate quality, you know, is still very important. That was making up their minds, the quality of the individual candidates rather than the actual policies. And I think the quality of the campaign, you know, and, and again, this is to, to um, pick up on something Naomi was saying, uh, definitely the risk for the Lib Dems is they get overexcited and do too much targeting. I, I mean, or too little targeting, spread themselves too thinly. But the thing about the Lib Dems is they only win elections by getting loads of enthusiastic volunteers because people aren't going to sort of instinctively, or not many people are going to instinctively vote Lib Dem. You need to be sort of reminded to do so. Uh, and so in that sense, traditional campaigning, including sticking leaflets through letterboxes and talking to people, really makes a difference. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well... I have, John. You mostly went around finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. We've reached the end of the show. So what are the stories that have gone under the radar this week? Naomi, what's yours? Well, there is going to be a key vote at the European Parliament on Thursday. Um, So after we've recorded and before the non-Patreon version of this podcast has come out, on banning the use of facial recognition technology by border forces and on the streets across the EU. There is a group of centre-right MEPs expected to vote against it because they say this kind of tech helps catch terrorists, um, but most are anticipated to back it and it should become law by the end of the year. Um, uh, And lots of people, yeah, just, you know, fearful of this ever encroaching eye of big brother by corporates and authorities over the european people um and i i you know think this is interesting given that we know facial recognition tech was being used over the coronation weekend to try and deter people from peacefully protesting against the monarchy um and if this uh law is passed um and i think it's it's pretty much the first of its kind to be voted on by any parliament in the world. Um, it will also ban emotional recognition, AI, which could be used by employers or police to identify tired workers or drivers. Um, and it will also force those generating artificial intelligence to be much more transparent about which original literature, science research, music, other copyrighted materials it's using to train machine learners. And that enables um, you know, artists, bands, academics and others to sue if they think copyright law has been breached. So I just thought a very interesting bit of legislation happening uh, over the channel that isn't happening here. Indeed. Arthur, how about you? Well, this is um, 
related to something that was the opposite of under the radar, because I'm talking about the coronation, which is very much over the radar, perhaps too much so for some people's taste. But I was thinking about those countries that have um, King Charles as their new monarch, uh, which are not Britain. And of course, everyone's very familiar with with the big ones like Australia and Canada. Uh, But there are some smaller countries, particularly in the Caribbean. And what really struck me during the ceremony was how those countries really didn't get a look in at all. If there is some debate around the longevity of that arrangement and and the fact that, you know, we know that, for example, in Australia, there is a strong Republican movement, but certainly in Jamaica, there's an active debate about it as well. It just seemed a really obvious own goal that you didn't make it very clearly a coronation for all, all the realms, all the countries that have King Charles, rather than just this particular one. Yeah, one prime minister, I think, said that he his country couldn't be fully dem- democratic with the king in charge. And I can sympathise with that. Yeah, particularly when it is very literally a colonial legacy. There's no other way. You can't sugarcoat it. And it just, again, it just, there could have been ways to make it clear that this man saw his responsibility as to a list of countries. And it's an unusual situation and it's to do with history, but fine, whatever, you know, that's how I see it. But it, it felt like a very exclusively British event. And in that sense, well, maybe the decision is that they, these things are going anyway. I don't know. But that seems a bit odd. Marie, yours is about Plaid Cymru, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is about the fact that the leader, Adam Price, is having to step down uh, following a report that showed that um, Plaid Cymru had effectively become a hotbed of sexual harassment and bullying, which I have to say, again, had entirely passed me by um, and is also quite striking, I think, because um, they had become... Well, I suppose, you know, somewhat more strident from an already quite high base over the past few years on the idea of Welsh independence. And um, yeah, I think that, you know, coupling this and what's been going on with the SNP, it is not a good time at the moment to be a nationalist party um, in the United Kingdom, I would say. Well, if he does go, I hope they do replace him with a woman, because other than Carla Denya, who's the co-leader of the Green Party, there is now no other party in GB props to Northern Ireland, but uh, NGB that would have a woman uh, as leader. And mine is about Camden Council. Sorry if that sounds a bit specialised, but I think the same principle applies to lots of councils. It was fined half a million pounds this week by a court for basically failing to implement fire regulations, for failing to sort out a, um, a block of flats. And a young woman died in a fire as a result of that negligence. Now, that's tragic and clearly Camden should be held responsible. But was it really Camden's fault that they are struggling to fulfil all their responsibilities in this area because they're so short of money and they can't do all the repairs that they want to? Or is it actually the responsibility of central government to make sure that councils can afford to do this kind of thing? And you know, half a million pounds, it's going to make a small dent, but a reasonably, you know, important dent in Camden's ability to actually do its job. Is it really useful to find councils who are already cash-strapped when they it's going to have an effect on their services? Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our patient army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. And don't forget, Oh God, What Now? live at Leicester Square Theatre on Wednesday the 24th of May. Tickets are out now and Patreon people get a discount. Search Oh God, What Now? Patreon to find out how to get yours. We'll see you next time.
Hello and best wishes from me to Victoria Esposito, Ingrid and Edward Simpson. Hi and many thanks for your support to Connor Lawler, Penny Yules Bergeron and Neil Armitage. And a big shout out from me to Alex S, Valerie Drew and Clara Anderson and Clara, if that's my friend Clara Anderson, a massive, massive thank you and we should meet up soon. And finally, 12 points et merci beaucoup to Greg Jenkins, Sean Bowie and Kathleen Butterfield. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now was presented by Ross Taylor with Naomi Smith, Arthur Snell and Marie LeConte. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis and the producers were Kasia Tomasiewicz, Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now? It's a Podman. Hi, Mum. Yeah, I'm just at work. Can I? Yeah, yeah it arrived. Yeah, which one did I start today? The the athlete's foot one. Yes, I will. Yeah, she she's fine. Yes, I, yeah, I already told you she's my girlfriend. That's not really your business. Yes, I'm wearing the socks to bed. Doctor Singh gave them to me. Yeah, and in the bath. Yes. No, don't pass me over to Auntie Sharon. No, no, no. Get yeah. just give my love. Okay, okay. Love you. Love you too. Bye. Oh, okay. Oh, sh- Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. Do you remember Miriam Margulies on the Today programme? She was talking about the death of Robbie Coltrane, and then, thinking she was off air, she told the presenters what she really wanted to say to Jeremy Hunt when she'd met him in the studio. <laughs> and I won't repeat those words here, because... Well, I could, but... (laughs) And it's not just what you say on a hot mic. Earlier this month, the BBC presenter, Luqueza Burak, stretched out in her seat for a full minute before realising she was, in fact, live on camera. I don't do a lot of live radio, and certainly not TV, it's ghastly, but we've all said things we shouldn't. I've learnt from bitter experience not to comment on a bunker guest when I've just finished recording the bunker, because you know what? They'll still be listening down the line. (laughs) Naomi, has the hot mic ever caught you? Oh, God, I don't think so. Um, I did get caught slagging off a colleague on a bus. Uh, so I used to get a bus from where I lived in North Leeds into the city centre to go to work. And a more senior member of staff got, also caught the same bus. And so we'd often sit there in the mornings gossiping away to each other. And we had, she, she was a she, um, and we had a male colleague who was the same seniority as her, so sort of a couple of years above me on the grad scheme. And he was jaffing useless, lazy shit, basically. Um, and we ended up always having to pick up pieces and do his work for him. And so we'd been having a right old moan about him. And unbeknown to us, his girlfriend was sat right behind us and she had then described us to him. So it was hook, line and sinker. It was absolutely, definitely me. Um, and so we got hauled in front of HR over that. So that was that was a low moment in my uh, in my gossip history. Um, and then during lockdown, when it was endless, endless back to back Zoom meetings, because I do have to have a lot of meetings for my job and doing that endlessly on Zoom was awful. And I remember I'd got to sort of like the fifth hour long meeting of the day and realised I hadn't weed yet and I was absolutely desperate. So I turned my um, camera off and muted myself because I, you know, other, other people were doing most of the talking at that stage and sort of ran upstairs, but with my phone, with the Zoom app open 
in my hand and just in case somebody asked me to come in um weed flushed and then realized I had managed to take myself off mute uh so that was another low so if, if those things kind of count then yes I have had embarrassing moments but I don't think so on yet on broadcast media but it's I'm sure it's coming to me I'm sure of it and she was a bigoted woman she was fucking bigoted good old Gordon <laughs> That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week, without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God What Else, every Monday morning and some fabulous merchandise. Thanks for listening. See you next week. (laughs) 